Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you that we have been brought to this place where we can sit and study and learn of you, Lord, where we can uh, soak in the Spirit, where we can remind ourselves of the words of the Master Yeshua, and that we can also participate in this wonderful festival known as Hanukkah. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you that uh, you have redeemed us as a people, that you have uh, brought us to yourself, that you're raising us up, that you're taking us higher and, and further into you, Lord, that you are revealing your plans to us, and that you're forgiving us of our sins, and that you're filling us with your spirit, all the wonderful promises that are yes and amen in the Messiah, Yeshua. I thank you, Lord, that we've had this opportunity to um, uh, enjoy uh, festivities with our families and with our congregations and friends this week as we've lit our Hanukkahs and reminded ourselves of the fact that we will not assimilate. Lord, we will not go away. We will not be destroyed. We will not uh, be made silent. And Lord, it's because of your great mercy for us, not just as a Jewish people, but as the Gentiles who've been grafted into Israel. Um, this people group known as Israel survives because you have declared it so. You have you have promised in your scriptures, in your words, that uh, uh that your covenant will not pass away. The covenants that you've made with the Father's Lord are everlasting covenants, and we thank you for your faithfulness. It's not because of things that we've done or because of uh, prayers that we've said or sacrifices that we've brought, uh, but because of your great love for us that we survive. We, the people of Israel, are still here today. So thank you for the miracle of Hanukkah, the miracle of 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 dedication, uh, the miracle of mercy and grace that has been extended to us and be, and fully seen in the light of all lights. Yeshua is his name. We thank you, Lord, and all of these things will be careful to give you the praise. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining me once again to Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunava in Thornton, Colorado. That's the Harvest. And I invite you out there. Uh, if you're in the Denver area, you can come and join us on a Saturday. I think it's afternoon. 1 p.m., I believe, is the uh, Shabbat service time. And just like everyone else around this time of year, we're engaged in Hanukkah celebrations. Uh, probably most of them are taking place in the houses. So um, it is the season of Hanukkah. So happy Hanukkah, or Hanukkah is really 
uh, how you can pronounce it, that, that guttural there. Um, I hope you guys are having fun lighting your Hanukkiahs and uh, enjoying uh, potato latkes and, and uh, playing dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. So uh, just, just enjoy the festivities. Let's date stamp our recording. Today is December the 16th for most of you, 2017. And this is week number 83 for our Galatians study. And we go on a schedule of 10 weeks on, 2 weeks off. So if you'd like to join us live each week via Skype, uh, just grab your computer, smartphone, laptop, iPad, whatnot, um, and just head on over to Skype and log in that way. Well, you say, well, I don't have all the information. How can I do that? Well, first, you need to go over to my website, all right, www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And right on the homepage, there's a link that says Galatians Commentary. Click that, and it'll have all the logistical information needed to join uh, to, to uh, join us live each week via Skype. We meet from about uh, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. I say about. We start at 7 if we can. Sometimes we start a little later, and sometimes we go a little later. So it's about that time, and we go for about an hour. And then bonus, for those of you who are with us live each week, we stick around and we engage in some fun chat discussion of the notes or uh, just some other topics, whatever the Lord leads us to do at that time. We do that for a few minutes. So if you're not joining us live via Skype, then you're missing out. If you're just listening to these commentaries after I've uploaded them to my website or if you're uh, picking them up on the iTunes store, you're only catching the teaching. Join us for the live discussion. It doesn't get recorded, so you're not going to be able to uh, get it by MP3 if you don't join us live. So I'd like to join every, uh, invite everyone. It's free. I don't charge anything for these commentaries. It's just my blessing to be able to engage in Midrash with you, the students. All right. Without further ado, let's um, read some liturgy tonight. I'm just going to read the traditional uh, Torah blessings, the three blessings where we engage in Torah study. This would include the um, Aaronic benediction as well. And tonight I'm just going to use a different resource. For those of you who are with me in live's class, you should be able to see on my screen I've got the Safaria website pulled up, which is becoming my new favorite resource site. Uh, they've got just a wealth of... of um, rabbinic and uh, Talmudic and uh, resources. Uh, most of it is in Hebrew, but a lot of it's translated into English. So if, if you can navigate through the Hebrew, then it's a great website for you. Safaria, S-E-F-A-R-I-A. All right, safaria.org. And let's use their um, liturgy tonight. Let's read these blessings. We've got English and Hebrew. I'll read the English first, and then I'll read the Hebrew. And then uh, we'll entertain some Greek. Uh, the English says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to be involved with words of Torah. And please, Lord our God, make the words of your Torah pleasant in our mouths and in the mouths of all of your people, the house of Israel. And may we find our offspring and the offspring of our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us be knowing of your name and study your Torah for its sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from all the nations and given us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, who gives the Torah. And then as I keep scrolling down, for those of you who are in live class, you'll notice there's three more paragraphs in Hebrew, and there's no 
English over there. Um, I'll go ahead and translate what it says uh, in the English. Basically, um, this first paragraph is uh, a recitation of number six uh, verses. I think it's 20, around 22 through 26 or 27. Um, uh, these first two paragraphs. Uh, basically, this is the God commanding Israel, commanding the priests, commanding the sons of Aaron to bless the children of Israel and then to re recite the Aaronic benediction. So um, it reads, uh, if I were to translate this Hebrew for you right here, it says, um, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and say to them, uh, this is the way you'll bless the children of Israel. Say to them, may the Lord, and then we start with the second paragraph down here. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord uh, lift up his countenance toward you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, uh, uh, oh, how do we say? May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And let them place, put my name upon the children of Israel, and I shall be a blessing to them, or I shall bless them. That's basically what this says in Hebrew. And then this last little paragraph right here, which there's no English translation, um, you know, which I'll go back and read later on after I read the English. This is a quote from the Mishnah, if I'm correct, I think this is Pale 1 1. Um, a, a tractate out of the, the Mishnah itself, which says these are the precepts that have no prescribed measure. And then it goes on to say, um, mentions the corner of a field, which must be left for the poor. Uh, there's a sentence there that talks about the first fruit offering of the pilgrimage, Bikurim. And then the last one is acts of kindness in Torah study. And the reason we mention this is because this is Talmud Torah, which is Torah study. This last, these fast, last few words there. Okay, let's go back and read um, the Hebrew of all of that section there for the liturgy, uh, starting back from the top. Reread, starting right here. Baruch Ata Adonai Lochinu Melech Haolam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotai V'Tzivanu Lasok B'Divrei Torah. That's that first paragraph. Second paragraph here starts out. Ba'arev Na Adonai Lochinu Et Divrei Torah Tcha B'Finu Uviot Amcha Beit Yisrael V'Nehe Anachnu V'Tzetzeinu. And then in uh, italics it says V'Tzetzeinu. And then this paragraph down here. Most of you who attend Messianic congregations are familiar with um, probably your chazan, your your the person who uh recites or chants your your cantor, he probably recites this, probably even uh sings it. There's a there's a tune that goes with this Barukata Adonai. That one. And then the last three paragraphs here in Hebrew, where we talk about the speak to the sons of I'm sorry, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and then we, uh, this is straight out of um, Numbers, by the way. Say to them. Uh, here's now the Aaronic benediction, this middle section here. Um, 
and then uh, we jump down into this final pasik, this final verse, uh, il, uh, which is, um, yeah, um, this pasik here is not in the Torah. This is, again, uh, out of the Mishnah. And in some versions, it's Mishnaic Hebrew. In other versions, it's Aramaic. But right now, it's Hebrew for us. Alright, that'll be our Hebrew liturgy for tonight. Let's jump now into the Apostolic Scriptures and entertain some liturgy in Greek uh, using the book of Galatians, chapter 5. And the liturgy is going to uh, be... Um, let's see... Let me jump backwards in the verse in the chapter for a bit. We're going to include uh, verses one through six. We'll skip uh, the next few verses and we'll pick up again in verse thirteen and read down to verse seventeen. So one through six, and then thirteen through seventeen. And tonight we're actually going to study for our notes uh, thirteen, fourteen, sixteen, seventeen. We're actually going to skip verse fifteen right there in the middle. Alright, so in English, uh, we'll read from the ESV, which starts out, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 4, You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right. Familiar verses. We've read those in the past. Let's skip over verses 7 through 12 uh, in our liturgy section and jump down to verse 13, and we'll read through verse 17. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You can see instantly why I jumped down to verse 13 from verse 1. It's because, in my opinion, the theme of verse 1 is, is carried again down in verse 13. He uses freedom. He talks about um, uh, the flesh again and things like that. So um, uh, the yoke of slavery, the yoke of being uh, uh, tied again to your old nature, things like that. So you're called to freedom, brothers, right? For, for freedom Christ has set us free, verse 1, and then in verse 13, you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know, of course, that's a quote um, straight out of the Torah itself. Uh, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We'll read verse 15 in the liturgy, but we're not actually going to study it tonight when it comes to the notes. So let's jump to verse 16 and 17. Uh, 16 says, but I say walk by the Spirit. This actually introduces a new topic, but we're going to... We're gonna, um, we're going to wade into this topic uh, as an introductory, those first two verses for tonight. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the final verse that we're going to look at tonight, if we have time, verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And we'll stop there with our liturgy. And if we make it through this section in our notes tonight for the next 45 minutes, this will turn us 
to, to this will prepare us uh, to talk about this famous verse in verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, which is going to take a lot more time for me to explain my particular opinion on it, which is why I stopped right there in the liturgy. All right, let's turn to the, uh, the SBLGNT version of the Greek, and um, we'll pick this up again for the liturgy, and I'm using the same website, the, uh, the Bible Hub, since it has a lot of um, morphology and uh, a wooden translation underneath the Greek, as well as all the Strong's numbers that I'll be using later on, things like that. So let's use that for version of the Greek. All right, starting in verse 1 again, we're going to read 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump down. Verse 1, Teleutheria, hemas Christas eleutherosin, steikate un kai me palen zugu duleas in a keste. Verse 2, ide ego palos, Lego human hati in peritemnesta, Christas humas uden ophelese. Verse 3, Marturo mai de palen panti anthropo, peritemnameno, hati ophelates, est in halantan naman poiesai. Verse 4, ka tergethete apa Christu, hoitinis in namo, dike uste, tes charitas exapesate. Verse 5, Hemes garpnumati ek pistios elpida decaiusunes apegdecametha. And then verse 6, En gar Christo Jesu ute pertome tiescue ute acrobustia, ala pistis di agapes in ergumene. And then let's jump down to verse uh, 13. And read those next five verses here: 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Verse 13: Hemes gar ep eleutheria eclethete adelphoi manon me tain eleutherian eis aformain te sarki ala dietes agapes duluete alelois. Verse 14: Ho gar pas namas en heni lago peplerotai en to agapeses. Tan plesion su hos, I'm sorry, hos sutan. Verse 15. E de alelos, alelus, I'm sorry, dagnete kai katestiete, blepete me hup alelon analothete. Verse 16. Lego de pneumati perapatete, kai epithumian sarcas u me telesete. Verse 17. He garasarx. Epithume, katatu pneumatas ta de pneumakata te sarakas, tauta gara alelois, antiketai, hina, me ha ien telete, tauta poete. And we'll stop right there with the liturgy. All right. Last week we talked about, we hit verse 11. And the verse 11 reads, But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And we're skipping verse 12 where Paul says, I wish those who would unsettle, them, unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Last week's teaching, we talked about Paul's explaining this phrase circumcision, which becomes a key term in Pauline theology and Pauline literature. What does it mean where Paul was what does it mean when Paul says I still was preaching circumcision? Of course, I mentioned last week that traditional Christian commentaries on this verse, verse 11, uh, have Paul 
expressing the opinion that circumcision was essential to the theology of the Judaisms of his day, and circumcision was basically a gateway commandment uh, to keeping the rest of the Torah. So it's basically from the the traditional Christian perspective of what Paul was meaning, in other words, their interpretation of this phrase circumcision, Paul basically was uh, confessing that he used to believe that a person is saved by keeping the Torah, and that if that that Torah keeping began with circumcision, physical circumcision, and then it continued on from there towards the rest of the commandments. So, uh, circumcision became like I call it the gateway commandment, or the first domino in the set of the rest of the dominoes that would fall afterwards as one started down the path of keeping the Torah in order to become saved. Of course. In this viewpoint uh, that the Christian church describes, this caricature that they describe uh, Paul's Judaisms, um, it's never quite clear how much Torah one has to keep in order to be saved. Some Christians teach that um, the Judaisms of Paul's day had to keep it, they believe that they had to keep it perfectly. Thus, in my opinion, it would I, I guess it would be almost somewhat of a lifelong endeavor, meaning you would never know you're saved until you died, right? I, I mean, when when would the pronouncement be made, and by whom would who would be making it, right? Would it be the priest? Would it be the person? Would it be the king of Israel? Would it be God Himself? Would it be the prophet of the day? Who would be saying to you, you know, who would be who would be bringing the gavel down in your favor and saying you're saved, you're you're righteous? You know, how would one how would the Torah observant initiative Paul's day know that he has that he's tipped that last domino? You kind of follow along with my logic, but nevertheless, Christian theology teaches that the, that the Judaism of Paul's day were teaching that salvation hinged upon Torah observance, and that that circumcision here in this verse is just the first of many uh, Torah-observant works, thus works of the law, that one had to walk through if they wished to be saved. And of course, the standard of salvation that was predicated upon Torah-observance, according to the the interpretation of, of traditional Christian theology, the merit theology that we read about today, um, according to this opinion, um, uh, 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 circumcision being the first one, again, um, I lost my train of thought there. I lost my choo-choo. Uh, all right. If I pick it up later, then I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. I was, gonna, I was going somewhere else with that. But basically, um, uh, Paul, by confessing that, if I'm still pre- preaching circumcision, is actually explaining to his readers in Galatians that he's no longer preaching it, right? Whatever this theology was from the Judaisms. Ah, I just remember what I was going to mention. According to Christian theology, this this standard of keeping the Torah to become saved was a standard or a um, um, a requirement for Jews and Gentiles of Paul's day. So it didn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It was the Jews who who had created this theology. It's false, of course. It's legalism. Uh, you know that's the opinion of the Christian Church, and I and I would agree with that definition of legalism. But um, according to the Christian uh, interpretations, this was a viewpoint that the Judaism's uh, not only uh, taught amongst themselves, but they also would have extended this theology to anyone Gentile who would wish to also become saved. 
basically the Jews of Paul's day were saying, hey, we're saved because we keep Torah. And speaking to a Gentile that they would meet, they would say, hey, if you want to become saved, you need to keep the Torah just like us. And the first thing you need to do is become circumcised because you didn't get it when you were an eight-day-old baby boy. So circumcision is the first step. And then from there, you need to continue to keep the Torah if you wish to be counted as saved. And all of this is called works of the law, keeping the Torah according to traditional Christian theology. And circumcision is the first step. So we talked about how that last week that I don't agree with that overly simplistic caricature of the Judaisms of Paul's day. Because that represents basically the traditional viewpoint of the Judaisms of Paul's day, what we might call the Reformation view of Paul or the traditional view of Paul the standard popular view of Paul, the historical uh, view of Paul, uh, Reformation Paul, Lutheran Paul. There are various names that they'll go by if you if you actually go through lots of Christian literature, you'll you'll come become familiar with this term. And it's a term, it's a viewpoint that I don't hold to very strongly. Um, but let's talk about why I don't, uh, because this is my segue into this into tonight's teaching. Last week I mentioned that um, one of the reasons why I have adopted, a, uh, I lean more heavily on the the new perspective on Paul, which teaches not that the Jewish people of Paul's day were trying to leverage Torah observance for the salvation part of it, but rather they were trying to leverage their ethnicity or their nationality as Israelites for the salvation part. The reason I've adopted that view, why I've upgraded, I should say, the way I view Paul instead of just holding the traditional Christian view that teaches that Torah observance is the requirement for being saved. The reason I hold to the newer perspective on Paul, which by the way is also held by many other well-known Christian teachers and and some non-Christian teachers. Uh, James D.G. Dunn is more or less a proponent of the new perspective. N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright is is more or less a new perspectivist uh, Christian. Um, E.P. Sanders, of course, is the one who's uh, credited with kind of starting this whole firestorm back in the late 70s with his book uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism that kind of kicked off this heavy discussion in in seminaries today about the new perspective. Mark Nanos, who's not Christian, by the way, I I failed to mention that uh, explicitly to my students in the past, but I wanted to let you know that Mark Nanos is a is a Reformed Jew. He's not a Christian, but he writes with a, a, an extremely well-understood view of Christian theology and Christian literature, and thus his New Testament commentaries, like his book to Romans and his commentary to Romans and Galatians, are both uh, from a new perspectivist view. And of course, my own teachings are largely influenced by the new perspective view. Tim Haig is uh, what I would describe as a new perspective uh, view. Um, uh, Rick Spurlock writes from a new perspective view. And on and on, there are many, many uh, new perspective uh, teachers these days. In other words, Christian writers who are... <clears throat> realizing that the traditional way of in, of interpreting Paul where salvation is is linked to keeping Torah prime first and foremost uh, that viewpoint is starting to kind of lose ground in, in in seminaries and amongst pastors and for good reason let's look at that so just briefly I hope I don't spend too much time on this uh, maybe the next 10 minutes or so we'll talk about this and then I'll jump into the study here's what I've found 
Here's two uh, very easily accessible internet sources that you, the reader, I'm going to actually show three here in a moment, but we'll start with the first two, that you, the reader, can can uh, research on your own if you want to start looking more at perhaps what did first century, first century Israel believe? And uh, one of the things you probably, one of the problems you probably encounter if you're like me and you're trying to figure out what exactly was the theology of the influencers or the, the legalizers, the Judaizers, the opponents of Paul in the book of Galatians? One of the problems you encounter is, is that um, historic literature literature is not what we describe as monolithic. In other words, the, the literature that has survived from the first century doesn't express one single theological ideology when it comes to answering this question of what did the Jewish people of the first century believe actually saved them? How were they saved? What was the theology that that they were holding to? And if you go back and try to start navigating through the rabbinic literature uh, that has survived from the destruction of the temple and, and the centuries that followed, you're going to find that, uh, number one, there's a bias built into much of the, for instance, the mission on the, and the Gemara, which formed the Talmud, there's a Pharisaic bias built into that. Why is that? Because the 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 opposing party, right? The 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 the, the ruling party that survived was the Pharisaic party that survived the destruction. The destruction. What does that mean? It means the other sects of Judaism, the Essenes, the the the, the Zealots, the um you know the Dead Sea sect, uh, the Qumranis, um, the uh, the Sadducees. Those particular uh, factions of Judaism didn't survive the destruction in 70 AD by the Romans. And so it's natural that the literature that followed, uh, the, you know, the literature that was redacted in the 90s by Judah Hanasi, uh, that was, I'm sorry, at, at, the, at the Council of Yavne in the 90s, where they started, um, they decided that they would start reconstituting Judaism because it was basically falling apart as a religion for the Jewish people. You remember that not only had the temple been destroyed, but they had been exiled from the land under pains of death by, by the Roman authorities at that time. And so basically they realized that if we don't do something as a people group, as a Jewish people, then basically we are also going to die out. And so they began to collect the sayings, the, uh, the oral traditions and and to codify them and to to edit them that's what redaction means and essentially the 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 the, the Mishnah was birthed you know the written part of the Mishnah was 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 uh, starting being started to be put together there so the point I'm trying to make is if you start wading through all the the, the rabbinic literature the Mishnah the Gemara the Tosefta some of the earlier rabbinic writings uh, the, the, you know the response to literature uh, and then later on start working your way towards some of the later literature the Midrashim the uh, you know uh, the Rambam's uh, guide to the perplexed or the his his Mishnah Torah and things like that you're going to start realizing that basically Judaism of today, rabbinic Judaism, which is the Judaism that was birthed in the 90s after the destruction of the temple, rabbinic Judaism is basically a product of Pharisaic Judaism, which means it's going to capture the bias of the Pharisees, which was heavily influenced, if I'm correct, by a theology that would have been, uh, if we look at the two houses, uh, House of Hillel and House of Shammai, it would have essentially been House of Hillel theology. But recall that there was also an event that took place, I'm, I'm trying not to make this into a long history lesson, but this is necessary to kind of try and put yourself back into the mindset of the first century. In the first century, 
prior to the time of Yeshua and prior to the time of Paul, I think sometime in the 20s if I remember. I'll have to go back and look at my dates again. But there was this, there was an event uh, that gave rise to this edict that were that is later known as the 18 measures or the 18 edicts, 18 uh, rulings that were essentially um, a product of the house of Hillel. And uh, just briefly, the two houses, house Hillel, house Shammai, I'm sorry, it was a product of the house of Shammai. These two houses, right, two schools of thought, two kind of competing schools within Judaism. Remember, there's a diversity in Judaism. These two schools essentially represented kind of like, if to use a, a very crude analogy, they kind of represent kind of like political parties, like Democrat versus Republican, where one of these um, parties today is more liberal and one of them is a little more conservative. So just like in today's political parties where one is more liberal and one's more conservative, we had the same concept going on with School of Shammai and School of Hillel. Hillel was a little more conservative and Shammai was a little more, I'm sorry, was a, Hillel was a little more uh, uh, relaxed, a little more, um, yeah, conservative, I suppose. Um, and or liberal, I should say that way, liberal. And where Shammai was more strict, more stringent. The rulings were stricter. They had less uh, good things to say about Gentiles. They were very strict in their rulings. They're, they weren't as lenient. Um, they gave rulings that, that appeared to be very harsh. Uh, the Hillel, school of Hillel was a little more relaxed, a little more lenient in their rulings. They let things slide a little more. Yeshua identified more with the house of Hillel, if you want to think of it in that terms. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that these 18 measures that were um, enacted uh, uh, even before the time of Paul, before the time of Yeshua, these 18 measures kind of influenced the way uh, Jewish policies uh, were being enacted, uh, at least among a majority of the Judaisms of those days known as the Hillelites. I'm sorry, I keep saying the wrong one. Nano the Shemaiites, the house of Shemai, uh, w- endorsed these 18 measures. And the point I'm trying to uh, convey to you is that these 18 measures included um, basically a prohibition of Gentiles joining Israel except uh, unless they undergo the conversion policy. So basically there was no room for Gentiles within these 18 measures. These 18 measures basically said to Gentiles, you cannot join the ranks of Israel unless you convert to Judaism first. Uh, versus maybe the the house, uh, the school of Hillel might have just said, no, as long as you're righteous, as long as you uh, uphold a measure of righteousness, uh, uh, you know, keep, steer clear of idolatry, perhaps maybe there's a place for you in Israel. Something like that. So, um, for now, that's that's not as important, but I did want to uh, mention that to you. All right, here's where we're going with just this quick peek into the mindset of some of the Jewish Judaisms of of yesteryear and the Judaisms of today. Suppose you today, you this Torah student today, wish to begin uh, asking, what do Jews believe? I mean, if if I can't know for sure what the Jews of the first century believe when it comes to how one is saved, what if I ask a Jew today? You know, if uh, most Christians don't interact with Jews on this level, to be sure. Uh, but if you could, if you could just kind of wander into a synagogue, or if you have a Jewish friend who's maybe religious or not religious, if you could wander into a synagogue and ask a rabbi, right? What do you guys think about salvation? How will you become saved? How you how will you guys be saved? Here's some of the the interaction that you might deal with. Let's turn to Judaism 101, which is uh, www.jufaq.org. 
And on their webpage, Judaism 101, they have this section entitled Olam Haba, the world to come, which is what the Hebrew phrase Olam Haba means. It means the Messianic age, uh, the age that comes after this age. We could also refer to it as the age of the resurrection, as opposed to the age of eternity. Basically, it's from, for Judaism, it's what happens after you die and you are resurrected. You have to remember, it's the Pharisees who held to resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. So it's kind of a good thing that the Pharisees are the ones who survived and that the that rabbinic Judaism was influenced by the Pharisees, that it's a product, because at least uh, in accordance with what Christian theology teaches, uh, resurrection got uh, included in their theology. So, here's what Judaism 101 has to say real quick about the Olam Haba. They talk about the spiritual afterlife referred to in Hebrew as the Olam Haba, the world to come. Although this term is used to refer to the Messianic age, uh, the Olam Haba is another higher state of being. I'm reading very quickly because I just want you to catch the gist of this. I'm reading straight from their website. I'm only going to read just a few paragraphs. In the Mishnah, one rabbi says, this world is like a lobby, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to read that part. Um, I do want to jump right down to this part right here. All right, so listen up. This is according to Judaism 101. This is basically kind of a uh, uh, an overview of what Jewish people believe today. This, of course, does not speak to all Judaism, but if we're looking at a snapshot of Judaism today, keep in mind that there's still kind of the Judaisms of the day, just like there were of the first century, although today it's probably not as diverse uh, because of... Uh, all of Judaism is essentially the Judaism of the rabbis today. So it's rabbinic Judaism. So it's less diverse than it was perhaps in the first century when there wasn't any quote-unquote rabbinic Judaism. But nevertheless, today's Judaism, basically the, the three parts of Judaism, the Orthodox, the, the Conservative, and the Reform, those three main branches of Judaism today kind of had this unified voice when it comes to some particular topics. And here's one of them. The Talmud states that all Israel has a share in the war, in the Olam Haba. However, not all shares are equal. A particularly righteous person will have a greater share in the Olam Haba than the average person. In addition, a person can lose his share through wicked actions. There are many statements in the Talmud that a particular mitzvah, that is commandment, will guarantee a person a place in the Olam Haba, or that a particular sin will lose a person's share in the Olam Haba. But these are generally regarded as hyperbole, excessive expressions of approval or disapproval. All right, so that's my first paragraph. They're going to quote this Mishnah, which we're going to look at here in a moment, about the, how the Talmud states that all Israel has a share in the world to come. All right, look at this next paragraph from Judaism 101 from Jufak. They say, some people look at these teachings and deduce... Of course, these some people would be the non-Jews, a.k.a. Gentiles and Christians. Some people, starting in this paragraph here, some people look at these teachings and deduce that Jews try to, quote, earn our way into heaven, end quote, by performing the mitzvot. Pause. Isn't that exactly the way Christians portray the Judaisms of Paul's day? trying to earn their way into heaven by performing the mitzvot. Yes, it is. Go back and read Lutheran Paul. Go back and read Reformation Paul. Go back and read any standard Christian commentary that you find in your average uh, Christian Bible bookstore. Go back and have a, have a discussion with your average Christian pastor. And this is the, the basically the, the um, stereotypical uh, portrayal or caricature, as I describe it, of Paul's Judaism. The Jews of the first century trying to 
earn their way into heaven by performing the commandments, end quote. All right, notice, listen to what Judaism 101 has to say about that charge. Some people look at these teachings and deduce that Jews try to earn our way into heaven by performing the mitzvot. This is a gross mischaracterization of our religion. Sounds like they're a little bit offended, don't you think? As I keep reading, it is important to remember that unlike some religions, Judaism is not focused on the question of how to get into heaven. Judaism is focused on life and how to live it. Non-Jews frequently ask me, right, again, this would be Christians or Gentiles, non-Jews frequently ask me, quote, do you really think you're going to go to hell if you don't do such and such, end quote? Of course, that's typically how Christians talk as well. It always catches me a bit off balance, this writer says, because the question of where I'm going after death simply doesn't enter into the question when I think about the mitzvot, when I think about the commandments. We, speaking of the Jews, we Jews, we perform the mitzvot because it is our privilege and our sacred obligation to do so. We perform them out of a sense of love and duty, not out of a desire to get something in return, such as salvation. In fact, one of the first bits of ethical advice in Pirkei Avot, which is a book of the Mishnah, it's right, one of the tractates, is, quote, be not like servants who serve their master for the sake of receiving a reward, such as keeping the Torah to become saved. Instead, they say, this is the quote from Pirkei Avot, which is sayings of the fathers, ethics of the fathers. Instead, be like servants who serve their master not for the sake of receiving a reward and let the awe of heaven, or the fear of heaven is what the Hebrew word there says, yirat Hashem. Let the awe of heaven, meaning God, not the afterlife, be upon you, end quote. All right, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I find that highly interesting that your average Jew, according to Judaism 101's website here, your average Jew doesn't think about how can I get into heaven? What can I do to get saved? What can I do to be saved? How can I be saved? He doesn't think about that when he's keeping the commandments. And I can only speak for myself, but I think this is the sentiment of many religious Jews worldwide. I worshipped as an Orthodox Jew for two years, only two years of my life. But this is almost identical to, to the way they spoke. When they talk about keeping commandments in the Orthodox Jewish community that I was a part of, it was not because they thought, if I keep commandments, I'm going to be saved. God's going to let me into heaven. They didn't leverage the Torah. They didn't think that. That wasn't their mindset. They weren't preoccupied with keeping the Torah with this view point that God will reward them with salvation. Instead, it was like almost exactly verbatim with the way that Judaism 101 is talking about. Now, of course, there's some ambiguity as to what this phrase, uh, share in the world to come, means. And, of course, if Jewish people uh, down, through the, down through history aren't trying to keep the Torah to become saved, if that's not what they believe, then why are they so preoccupied with all the minutia of Torah, one may ask. Your average Christian may, in fact, say that. What about the Pharisees who went across over land and sea, and they, 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 they tried to make a proselyte, and they, they strained at a net and swallowed a camel, like Yeshua said. They, they, they tried to make their phylacteries broad, and, and they, they, they made sure that they, they didn't, you know, they made sure the cup was polished on the outside. Why all of the focus on keeping the Torah, you might ask if it wasn't for the sake of becoming saved? Notice what Judaism 101 also says. It says, Nevertheless, we definitely believe, believe that your place in the Olam Haba is determined by a merit system based on your actions. Now, first I thought, well, aren't they conceding? Aren't they confessing that they are, in fact, believing in this type of salvation? But actually, 
If I go on to read, it says, um, Nevertheless, we definitely believe that your place in the Ulam Abba is determined by a merit system based on your actions, not by who you are or what your religion professes. In addition, we definitely believe that humanity is capable of being considered righteous in God's eyes, or at least good enough to, to merit paradise after a suitable period of purification. And I'm thinking, well, what? Didn't they just reverse what everything they just said about we don't keep the Torah to become saved. Now he's they're saying that we believe that your place in the Ulamaba? Ah, it hinges on this phrase place. In other words, all Jews have a place in the world to come. What they're trying to say, they're it's poorly written here. They're trying to actually say that they believe that all Jews do make it in, but your your location within the Ulamaba is different based on how righteous you were in this life. How do I know that that's the case? Well, let me keep reading, and then I'll also prove it by showing you this other quote from another website. They go on to say, Do non-Jews have a place in the Olam Haba? Speaking of Christians, of course, in this case, or Gentiles. The Jewish writer says, Although there are a few statements to the contrary in the Talmud, right? In other words, that, um, that Gentiles definitely do not get in. The predominant view of Judaism today is that the righteous of all nations have a share share being meaning a, a location, a place, have a share in the Olam Haba. So notice they are conceding, and this, of course, is ever since 12th century teacher by the name of Rambam Maimonides uh, wrote in his, uh, his Mishnah Torah that uh, righteous Gentiles can actually make it in as well. In other words, you don't have to be Jewish to get into the Olam Haba. As long as you are a righteous Gentile, keeping maybe the seven Nohide laws, you can also get in, things like that. So they go on to conclude by saying, statements to the contrary were not based on the notion that membership in Judaism was required to get into the Holam Haba, but were grounded in the observation that non-Jews, i.e. Gentiles, were not righteous people. If you consider the behavior of the surrounding peoples at the time that the Talmud was written, right, go back to the mindset of the near the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, up to about the 6th century when the, the Talmud was being put together right over the centuries of the time, the, basically the prevailing view of, of the Judaisms of that, that had survived, so I can just use the term rabbinic Judaism, they believed basically that Essentially, Gentiles were were pagans, they were sinners, they were idolaters, things like that. So, if you consider the behavior of the surrounding peoples at the time that the Talmud was written, you can understand the rabbis' attitudes about saying that uh, no Gentile has a share in the world to come because of the 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 the, the basically the characteristic idolatry of the first century of Gentile, right? By the time of Rambam, right, this would be 12th century and, and, and such, 11th century, 12th century, the belief was firmly entrenched that the righteous of all nations have a share in the Olam Haba. So basically all I'm trying to say is that, according to Judaism 101 website here, uh, Judaisms of the first century perhaps had a centralized view that was more in line with what the school of Hillel taught, I'm sorry, the school of Shammai taught, which was in accordance with the 18 measures that basically Gentiles do not have a place in the world to come. They don't have a share with the Jewish people unless they convert. And that the Jewish people themselves, by virtue of being Jewish, uh, have this share in the world to come, etc., etc. So it's not based on a merit system of works. It's simply based on their identity as Jews. All right, let's look real quick at one other, uh, two other websites. One is um, the one I mentioned last week, Chabad.org. Uh, the the Chabad Lubavitch movement is an extremely well known and and well funded popular Orthodox Jewish uh, movement around the world today. Uh, thousands, if not millions, of followers, um, well established. 
um, and they have a, a, a very uh, authoritative voice in the earth today as far as uh, Orthodox Judaism is concerned. The late Menachem Schneerson uh, was their, one of their uh, chief rebbies uh, based out of New York. So they have a website, the, the web version of their, commenta- of their uh, uh, movement, is www.chabad.org, and on their website they uh, talk about this um, passage out of, uh, let's see, they talk about this passage out of the Mishnah. Let me turn to it real quick. Uh, If I go back to Safari and I go to the Mishnah and scroll down to book Nezekin, which is Oaths, and turn to Sanhedrin, and then from here, let's go to chapter, or uh, tractate 10. Uh, let me change the view for a second. Um, what we end up with is in tractate 10, with, or Sanhedrin uh, chapter 10, which is basically, uh, if you're looking at the pages, it would be folio 90. But um, in, in chapter 10, we start out with this phrase, all Jews have a share in the world to come, as it says. And then there's a quote from Isaiah 60, verse 21. Thy people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And then it goes on to talk about, these have no share in the world to come, this Mishnah goes on to talk about. After this place, after this quote from Isaiah, in the in the Gemara, there would be this lengthy discussion about, um, uh, this discussion of the Mishnah, of uh, this, this phrase about uh, all Jews having a place in the world to come. And in Hebrew, we have, Kol Yisrael yesh lachem chelek le'olam haba. All Jews have a share in the world to come, as it is said, Shina Amar, and then we have this quote from Isaiah sixty twenty one. The first phrase is the first, uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, the first phrase or uh, just the first sentence is the part that's uh, the most telling. Uh, thy people all are righteous, right? All thy people are righteous. Interestingly, in the English, thy people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. In the English, the word forever shows up afterward, after the they shall inherit the land. But it's possible, based on the Hebrew, to th- to, to pay, take this part forever and put it right after righteous so that we would read thy people all Thy people are all righteous forever, because in Hebrew it says, "Va'amech kulam sadikim leolam, va'amech and thy people kulam all of them sadikim righteous leolam forever." So that's basically how it reads in the Hebrew. Okay, let's talk about this just for a split second. I don't know if I'm going to be able to hit all the commentary to Galatians tonight. We might turn this into two parts. This particular discussion on Chabad's website. They decide to discuss this topic about share in the world to come, and uh, all Israel has a share in the world to come, like we read in this Mishnah, like we read about in Judaism 101, right? All all Israel, the Talmud states, all Israel has a share in the Olam Haba, the age to come. What is the viewpoint, the opinion of a major Orthodox group uh, outfit like uh, the, the the Chabad Lubavitchers, right? What do they have to say about this particular Mishnah and the verse from Isaiah 60 verse, uh, what do we say, 60 verse 21? Yeah, 60 21. Let's move that over here so I can remember to get to it. Um, what do they have to say about this? Here's what uh, Chabad has to say. 
they go on to talk a little bit about all Israel has to share in the world to come. And as I scroll down, they're going to specifically um, talk about what is Olam Haba, what is the world to come, uh, things like that. And then um, uh, they eventually just kind of hit the na- nail on the head. Uh, in this phrase, all Israel has a share in the world to come, if we look at the at, at the uh, Hebrew here, kol Yisrael yesh lahem chelek le'olam haba. All, kol Yisrael, Israel, yesh, uh, yesh lahem, uh, to come, they have chelek, a share, uh, in the world afterwards, the world le'olam haba, the world to come. They have this share, this, this yesh lahem, this chelek right here, this this. Hebrew word right there is share or portion. And they're going to focus on just that word. Uh, here's what Chabad has to say real quick. Question, the word chelek, share, is superfluous. It could have said all Israel have olam haba. What do they mean all Israel has a word, placed in the, a share? What do they mean they have a share? And their answer, the word chelek is from the word chelcha, uh, a field or a plot. Some may own a piece of land and leave it uncultivated while others develop it and plant fruit and vegetables. Others are more entrepreneurially inclined and build a house on it and some build a place or a skyscraper. Indeed, they say, I'm reading this paragraph, every Jew has a chalek, a share, but it is like a piece of uncultivated land and it's up to the individual to develop it. What he does with his share and what it will look like when he comes to claim it are totally dependent on his deeds in this world, end quote. All right, so I just want to focus on that one part. What basically they're trying to say, if I can interpret this or uh, explain it to you if you didn't catch it, is they are believing that every Israel has a share in the world to come. Whether you're good or bad, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, per se, you have a share that's been reserved for you, a reservation by God. Uh, So you think of this giant banquet hall uh, that God has rented out, called heaven or the Olam Haba and in this giant banquet hall there's a table for and a seat for every single Jew and the reason there is a table and a seat for every single Jew is because God elected Israel as a whole God by virtue of his free will elected Israel that's why they interpret this phrase all Israel has a share in the world to come. All Jews have a share in the world to come. By the way, interesting, this uh, version of the Mishnah uh, that Safari is using, in the Hebrew it says, Kol Yisrael Yeshlechem, but in the English it says all Jews, which tells us a little bit about their theology. Instead of saying Kol Yehudim, it says Kol Yisrael, which means it really should say all Israel have a share in the world to come, not all Jews. But it lets us know that according to their theology, a prevailing theology from this time period of Mishnah, all Israel was all Jewish. All right, so the point I'm trying to make is that this share that they have, this chalik, is this seat and at a table in this giant banquet hall. And there's a place for you that God has already set apart for you. You don't have to do anything, per se, to get into the banquet hall. But whether you're going to be close to the podium or far away from the podium is dependent is 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 dependent upon your deeds or your or how righteous you are in the world. And that's basically what the Judaism 101 is trying to say when they're talking about nevertheless we believe that your place, right, your reservation in the in the Olam Haba is your place uh, your your distance to the podium if we will is determined by a merit system based on your actions, not by who you are or what religion you profess. So basically, uh, if we were to go back and uh, read through the rest of their question, uh, 
from uh, Judaism, uh, from sorry, from Chabad.org, we would learn that they're basically uh, agreeing with Ju- what uh, Judaism 101 is saying here, and that is that all Israel has a share in the world to come. They have a reservation. They have a lot. In other words, we, we know this word chalik refers to a field or a plot. So it's a it's a it's a place that God has reserved for all Jews. But um, whether or not you'll you'll have a larger plot or a small plot, whether or not it will be cultivated for you. Or, in advance, whether or not it'll grow weeds or not, whether or not you're close to the podium or not, to use the example of the uh, the the um, the wedding hall or what or not, uh, is dependent on your good works. All right. So, in the last uh, ten minutes of my discussion here, uh, before go- jumping into my commentary to the Book of Galatians, this is all kind of to set the backdrop to understanding the Book of Galatians. A, a very well-meaning question that one might ask. In fact, one that uh, one of the students who's with us in the study tonight in Skype, uh, I won't say his name, but he's listening. He asked me, um, how can one actually determine what the theology of the influencers is just using the book of Galatians? And this is a very good question. And this is why I think the, 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 the new perspective on Paul has become so meaningful. It's because if we go with the traditional Christian view that basically the influencers were teaching all Jews that basically you had to keep the Torah to include circumcision, which would have been the first, that you basically have to be circumcised and then keep the Torah in order to be saved, if we go with that view like traditional Christianity teaches, then it, it creates, in my opinion, a problem, some, some problems uh, related to exactly how many, Torah, how many laws should we keep in order to be uh, labeled righteous, to be labeled saved. That's one of the problems we, re- we encounter with the logic of, of that we have to keep, that, that the Judaisms were teaching that you have to keep the Torah to be saved. Number two, exactly how much of Torah should be kept and for how long, right? What's the duration of your Torah keeping? How long do you have to keep it before the pronouncement is made? In other words, it's like your your taking a test with the purpose of receiving a, a final grade. The final grade, in my analogy, being salvation. Of course, God is the one who's going to be grading the test because God is the only one who can extend salvation to any given individual. So if the Judaisms of Paul's day were teaching and believing that Torah keeping is what saved them, exactly what mechanism or what measurement or what standard could they use to measure the grading the grading point, the final grading of God, how would they know, right? Would they know in this life? Would they basically have to cross their fingers, roll the dice, and hope and pray that after they died that God actually graded their paper and that their grade came out with an A? In other words, a pass and not a fail? So you see, my point is there there doesn't seem to be any hint in not only the book of Galatians, but the rest of the apostolic scriptures as to exactly this grading system. If it, It's one thing to say that, that the Jews of the first century were teaching that, that they had to be saved by keeping the Torah, but exactly when did that said individual, said Jew, when, when could he have this assurance that he was actually saved? Aha, that's a problem in, their, in, in the logic that teaches that uh, the Jews were teaching that. Another thing is, I've, I've talked about this in the past, is that the Torah itself, the word Torah in the first century, was not a monolithic term itself, just like the Judaisms were diverse in their theology. The term law, the term namas in the Greek, but Torah in the Hebrew, this term was also very diverse in the first century. So that if, if, if we were to simply say that the Jews taught that you should keep the Torah in order to become saved, well, exactly how do you define that word Torah? Right among the many different Jewish factions of the first century: Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, Qumranis, uh, uh, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls, etc. A Dead Sea community, etc. Who has the right to define the word Torah? Is it written Torah? 
Is it oral Torah? If we just single out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in oral and written Torah, but yet the Sadducees rejected oral Torah and held to written only. So which Torah are you talking about, O Christian commentator, when you say that the Jews of the first century believed in, that believed that the Jews were leveraging Torah observance in order to be saved? Exactly what type of Torah are you referring to, right? What, what do you mean by the word Torah? It's too many different uh, definitions of the word Torah that were floating around the first century. That presents a problem for that viewpoint as well. Uh, so, I, I, in my opinion, there's just manifold uh, problems with uh, defining that view, defining the the character, uh, what we call the pattern of religion in first century Judaism, by this term merit theology, by this this concept. Instead, it seems more probable uh, as we wade through the rabbinic writings that we just looked at, just a, just a handful of them, as well as begin to work this out logically in our mind that this concept of being born with the status of saved and yet having to maintenance my my share, my place, my reservation, means it meaning I have to maintain by self-effort, by by merit, I have to maintain my place in the in my my salvation uh, by keeping the Torah. That seems more likely if we um, work through some of the logistics of it, because that theology is actually workable, it's thinkable, it's it's doable from a first century perspective. Consider this: if your average first century Jew didn't think he had to work his way. If he didn't have to do anything to, to become saved, he simply was born into the elect people known as God, right? He was born into, with the merit of the fathers, the salvation that carried from father to father to father, right? The zuhut avot. The, um, he was simply born a child of Abraham, like uh, John the Baptist detractors were leveling at him, right? You don't, don't say we're sons of Abraham, you know, God can use these stones and raise up son, children of Abraham. Don't don't just think that just because we're sons of Abraham. Yeshua also ran into these uh, this type of theology when he was arguing with some of the leaders, you know, they 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 declared when he called them sinners and and vipers and 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 sons of the devil. They said, no, 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 we're sons of Abraham. You guys are familiar with the stories from the Gospels. Well, it's entirely probable that what what is being described in the books of the, uh, the the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, is this viewpoint that was already being circulated because of the 18 measures that the house of um, Shammai had enacted, and that was it was becoming a more dominant view ever since the time period of the Maccabees, which right we're in the time period uh, we're in the time of uh, Hanukkah right now. We're we're reading the books of Maccabees and things like that. What happened about 100, 150 years, 125 years, etc. before? Uh, the time period of Yeshua. What happened in those in those first few centuries B.C. before the time of Jesus and Paul? What happened? Well, Israel was being in, uh, uh, um, repeatedly persecuted by by um, by a Greek element by the by the Maccabean. I'm sorry, not by the Maccabean, but by the by the uh, the Antiochus Epiphanes armies and by the uh, the Greco. Uh, 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 what do we say, um, element that was seeking to basically force Jews to assimilate and take on Greek customs, right? Forego circumcision, forsake the Torah, just give up on all of your kosher and your dietary and your, I'm sorry, your your festivals and your, your, your um, uh, what do we call it, all of your, your uh, uh, purity laws and all those things. Just give up on that. Just blend in. Give in, right? Just become Greeks, right? You can you can participate in the the games and the gymnasium, right? You can you can compete with us. You can just be good standing Greeks, right? Just 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 give in, right? 
it's the politically correct thing to do, right? Just go with the flow, swim, swim along with the the, the the stream. Don't 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 go against the stream. But but the Judaism's, you know, led by the Maccabees, by Judah Maccabeus, Judas Maccabean, Judas Maccabeus. I'm getting his name wrong. Anyway, he he Judah Maccabee. He's the one that said no. No, we're Jews. We're not going to give in. And if there's one thing that defines us as God's people, as as elect, as the chosen ones, it's our physical circumcision. It's the covenant that God made with us in Genesis chapter 17 with Papa Abraham. We're not going to give in. We're not going to give in. And so what did they do? They forced physical circumcision or Abraham's circumcision. Even on those Jews who were who were recognized as Jews but had had become lazy and not circumcised their sons, what did they do? They went around and forcibly circumcised many of them. This was well before the time of of even maybe the separation of the Essenes into the Dead Sea into the Dead Sea uh, area and you know to the caves of Qumran. This is before maybe the the, the, the that that group had separated themselves from the corrupt uh, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and, and gone out to the desert. This is well before then historically. It seems to be that circumcision as the sign of ethnic identity was becoming more and more pronounced during the time period of the Maccabees and that seems to have set the stage for this uh, perhaps the 18 edicts the 18 the benedictions the 18 uh, measures that were enacted I think in the 20s if I'm correct which then if we keep keep following the historic timeline um, gave rise to the theology that all Israel shares a place in the old world to come all Jewish Israel which then seems to make sense if we then now look at the influencers in the book of Galatians and and describe their theology as a theology that teaches that when it comes to salvation, we get in because we are national Israel. We get in based on our position as covenant members. We get in because God elected us in. God saved us as an ethnicity. It's God's election. God chose us first. God set his sight on our on our forefathers and brought us into a covenant status as a people group as a whole. When God brought us, all Israel, to the foot of Sinai and cut a covenant with us, Right, he he entered into a contract with us. We were the sons of Abraham already, but now as a people group, he declared us to be the recipients of the blessings of Torah obedience. That if we now, as saved individuals, as elect Israelites, we now also have this mandate or a covenant responsibility to walk into Torah. So it seems better, in my opinion, to build our, our, our case for the theology of the influencers based not just on the book of Galatians, but we also have to include the book of Acts and the, the, the rest of the apostolic writings as a whole, so we can kind of get a snapshot of the first century, and also remind ourselves of the historical events that came before the book of Galatians, i.e. the 18 edicts, uh, the, the time period of the Maccabees, uh, the forced circumcision, uh, all of the you know the, the 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 conflicts between the house of of Shammai and the house of Hillel, and, and which one favored um, circumcising Gentiles in order to bring them into covenant status, things like that. All of that goes a long way, along with our look at the um, rabbinic writings that we have with us. All that goes a long way. I think, towards giving us a, a better description of the Judaisms of the first century, as well as we can then um, kind of corroborate that hypothesis about uh, this view of the first century Judaisms and how they viewed salvation. Uh, we can kind of describe this, in my opinion, as a coin with two sides, where the first coin, labeled A, 
is salvation or ethnicity or uh, uh, getting into the covenant because you're born into it as a Jew. And then the second side of the coin, which I'll label B, is your maintenance of your membership by keeping the commandments, keeping the Torah, making sure to be diligent, to steer clear of idolatry, to bring the sacrifices when you sin, etc., uh, etc. Et so the, the two sides together, A and B, are struck to one coin that we can call righteousness right and this righteousness is is seen as uh originating with getting in on the a side with your ethnicity as a jew and staying in on side b with maintenance of a uh, key of, of your membership by keeping the torah or what we might call works of the law so if that is a good hypothesis to work from right a, 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 that's basically my thesis if that's a good hypothesis we could actually run with that hypothesis and and kind of overlay it against your average Jew today and ask your Jew, ask your average Orthodox Jew today, your religious Jew, how do you think you're getting into heaven, to use the language of Christians? How do you think you're getting into heaven? We recall, first of all, that your average religious Jew is probably not even going to understand the question because he does not focus on this phrase, getting into heaven. Instead, he focuses on life in the here and now. That's true. That's basically the way that uh, the Orthodox Jews uh, describe their their um, lifestyle, uh, the ones that I interacted with for two years at the congregation in Colorado, the Orthodox Synagogue, which was not Messianic, by the way. They didn't just talk about, hey, how do I get into heaven? How do I get into heaven? How many commandments do I have to keep to get into heaven? Oops, am I, am I keeping them all? Am I keeping them perfectly? Oops, I missed a commandment. You know, they didn't think that way. <laughs> their mindset was basically, we're Israel, we're in. In fact, your average Christian who knocks on a door and tries to witness to Jew and says, um, I was just wondering, um, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure that you'd uh, go to heaven or would you have some doubt? Your average Christian witnessing to a Jew uh, would run into a problem because your average Jew, your average religious Jew, would say, I don't think of getting into heaven as an individual basis. All Israel is saved. We're Jews. All Israel is in. We're in. I'm Jewish. I'm in. You know, I don't think of it as an individual. Do I need to get into heaven? That's kind of a Gentile Christian mindset, a Gentile Christian concept as seen from the perspective of a Jew. Uh, many religious Jews think that way. They, they, they think that Christians are preoccupied or Gentiles are preoccupied with how do I as an individual get into the people known as the saved people? How do I get into heaven? And there's this kind of a very strong individualistic, rugged, rugged individualism that's that's portrayed within Gentile Christianity or Gentile theology as a whole when it comes to works theology. But your average Jew today, your average religious Jew, doesn't have this kind of rugged individualism mindset. His ideology is driven. I can promise you this. You can go have a talk with your average religious Jew to confirm what I'm saying. Your average religious Jew basically has a very nationalistic perspective as a whole. He, when we read through the prayer books, it's always all of Israel, or us, or we, or their people. We read that in the liturgy, you know, all the, you know, the, the generations of, of Jews and, and generations after Jews, you know, when we read about the liturgy, it's, it's consistently Israel as a whole is spoken of as recipients of, of the election and the recipients of the blessing that comes from, from keeping Torah as a maintenance tool. So uh, I said all of that to say that I think it's a better um, position, a better, a better uh, um, 
uh, what should I say, a, th a, um, a hypothesis to go with this idea that f that the first century Jews were probably working from, it's, it's, I think it's fairly accurate to say that they're working from the position that they, when, when we talk about these two concepts of, of salvation and blessing, salvation is predicated upon one's ethnicity or nationality or belonging to a whole, what Sanders called getting in, and then your your place in the world to come, your your position within the people group, in other words, how close you are sitting to the podium or how well your land will be uh, cultivated, you know, to use the language of those two websites that we looked at from the Jewish sources, um, that is determined by how well you maintenance uh, the, the commandments that have been given to you as, as your share. So, uh, again, I'll, I'll see if I can say it just very plainly. I believe that the first century Judaism's largely not exclusively because of their because of their uh, their 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 um because of the diversity of the first century i granted i understand there's probably going to be groups perhaps maybe the essenes didn't describe it exactly articulate the way i'm describing it but i i think it's fair to say that that a good majority of jewish theology was probably driven by this this um, central belief that 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 jews as a whole were elected by god certainly i think Within, a, if we were to take all the factions of first-century Judaism, line them up in a in a in a in a line, um, uh, and ask them what are some of the things you hold in common, then uh, recognition that Israel was brought to the foot of Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, recognition that God cut a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, uh, those would be central tenets of probably every Judaism in the first century. Uh, you know, from the from the Pharisees to the Sadducees to the Zealots to the Essenes to the Bethusians, across the board, probably, uh, I think it's probably safe to say that most, if not all, of the Judaisms would have agreed with um, the, the, some of the facets that I'm describing about Abrahamic circumcision and uh, the, the Matan Torah, the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai, and God's election of, 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 of Israel as a whole, things like that. And so um, that's where I think it's probably the, the, the better, stronger hypothesis to work from this view when you're reading through the book of Galatians, that the theology is driven by the sense that, that, they, that the Jews were working from a, an assumption that we're already saved, we're already saved. That's how we get in. But when it comes to staying saved, when it comes to maintenancing our salvation, because we can, in fact, um, lose the the size of the plot that we have reserved for us, or we can be pushed further back from the, the banqueting table, uh, from, the, from the podium, so to say, to use those two analogies that I did earlier. We're not going to lose our salvation, but we're going to lose how much land we get, or we're going to get pushed further back from the podium, you know, assuming that God is standing on the podium and then the idea is to be closer to God, then all of that is done by how much Torah we keep and maintenance uh, and things like that. So, you guys kind of following with me? It's And and, and in closing, I'll just do this one verse, and then uh, I, I'm surely going to make this part two next week. We'll actually turn to my commentary and start with uh, verse uh, 13. If you look at Acts chapter 15, verse 1, Interestingly, it's those men who come down from Judea who teach, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If we follow with the traditional Christian teaching, that here we have a clear, maybe a statement of their theology, that circumcision is linked directly to salvation, well then, this is easily understood if we understand, uh, easily understood if we interpret this term circumcised to be Jewish identity. 
the way that we know that it was being leveraged in the first century. Uh, Abrahamic circumcision, which is physical circumcision, had given way to ritual circumcision, which was basically Jewish identity. And that took place probably in the first few centuries before uh, the Common Era, in other words, during the time period of the Maccabees when forced circumcision was taking place. Why were they going around forcing ritual circumcision? Um, uh, physical circumcision, which turned into ritual circumcision, uh, that whole concept of Jewish identity was kind of probably being reinforced during those first few hundred years uh, during the Maccabean period. So we can probably see now why the book of Acts would describe it that way, unless you are Jewish according to the custom of Moses. In other words, unless you become a Jew according to the, the this, when we say custom of Moses, we mean this 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 oral tradition that has its basis in, in, in the Torah of Moses. Uh, you cannot be saved. In other words, you can't be saved unless you're Jewish. But notice that that's only the side A of the coin that I described earlier circumcision, because if you jump down to verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, now watch this, I think they're describing both sides of the coin here, it is necessary to A, circumcise them, that is, turn these Gentiles into Jews, and then order them to B, keep the law of Moses, which would be the second side of the coin. Do you guys see it there? Right there in Acts 5, I think that's what's going on. Circumcised is the side A, the, the ethnicity that gets you in, that you're either born with if you're a Jew or you purchase if you're a Gentile, right? The proselyte conversion ceremony is the circumcised part. Because obviously the them that we're talking about, uh, the circumcised them is the Gentiles. So the circumcision part, the circumcised takes care of the ethnicity part, the getting in part, to use Sanders language. And then order them to keep the law of Moses, this works of the law, this keeping of the Torah is the maintenance side that I've described in my coin analogy of side B. Order them to keep the law of Moses. In other words, I don't think that circumcise and keep the law of Moses are both describing getting in. I think the circumcised part is describing the getting into the covenant people and the keep order them to keep the law, you know, keep the law of Moses is the staying in part to use Sanders language or to use my coin analogy of A plus B equals the whole coin. So I think that, in my opinion, is a very strong working hypothesis that the theology of the of the influencers was a getting in staying concept where getting in is done by ethnicity or nationalism or belonging to the people group, and staying in is done by maintaining the Torah, staying away from ideology, keeping the Torah, following after the Torah. Thus, we can now understand why the heavy emphasis on keeping the Torah, like we read about throughout the Apostolic Scriptures, like we read about in the Mishnah, why the heavy emphasis on keeping the Torah, not for the purpose of getting in, that was done when we were born Jewish, but the purpose is because I want to increase or improve my already existing lot and or move my seat closer to the podium and or just make sure that I don't actually get kicked out altogether like we read about in some of the other passages of the Mishnah that talk about people who actually don't inherit because there are certain commandments that it to violate God will actually remove your share from the um, place in the world to come, something like that, according to one theology. All right, so with that, I'll draw my study to a close. This was a very lengthy backdrop study, um, but I hope it's helpful in, in uh, getting into the mindset, perhaps, I think, a stronger opinion. Obviously, it's not... Uh, it's not going to describe every single viewpoint uh, to the book of Galatians, nor is it going to, in my opinion, describe every single probably Jewish view in the first century. There's probably... Um, 
people groups in the first century who didn't believe that all Israel had a place in the world to come, who probably didn't believe that ethnicity or nationalism alone described your righteous behavior or things like that. There's probably those in the first century who were believing that a certain amount of Torah keeping earned righteousness. But then again, we still have to ask the question, uh, what did their list look like? How long was it? Was it a short list? Was it a long list? And even then, no matter no matter whether it was long or short, who had the authority to give the grade? And if you say, well, of course, God has the authority to give the grade, whether it's a short list or long list, well, then my second question is, how did one come to the conclusion that God gave the grade? How was one made aware that God was was issuing the grade, whether it's a short list or long list, whether your short, whether your short list of keeping the Torah to become saved had two commandments, five commandments, five or ten, no matter how many, how long it was, or if it was the entire 613... How were you how did you come to the conclusion that yes I've arrived you see the the weakness of that position versus if we run the with the hypothesis that that the Jewish people by and large maybe not all but a good chunk of them a good portion of them at least we know the the the, the school of Shammai was holding this view that uh, your 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 righteousness and your salvation were 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 uh, based on your ethnicity well then it's very easy to determine God's uh, grade or God's, uh, uh, what do we say, his, um, his pronouncement because we know we're Jewish. Well, of course I'm Jewish. As soon as I become circumcised, as, once I became circumcised, I'm, I'm in. In other words, you're born with the knowledge that you've already made the grade if you're Jewish. And if we're a Gentile, all you have to do is just complete the circumcision, pro- I'm sorry, complete the, uh, uh, the, pro- the proselyte conversion process. Once you come out the other end, what does what do we read in the Mishnah? Once you go down into the waters of, of ablution, uh, you come up in Israelite indeed. So for the Gentile, all you do is complete the, uh, the uh, ritual of the proselyte. And once he went down uh, into the waters of the mikvah and came back up, he was pronounced as an Israelite, and it was that pronouncement by the Jewish authorities that gave his mind the um, assurance, so to say, of course we know it's a false assurance because it's not true, but it gave him an assurance that he was saved, that he was brought into the family group known as Israel, that he was included among the righteous, and that was step A for the proselyte, and now the step B for him was a lifelong pursuit of maintenance of Torah, that is, keeping Torah commandments according to whatever halakha of the group that he converted into. Makes sense? So I think that's a better running hypothesis, and that's the thesis that I'm going with so far in my studies to the book of Galatians. Next week, I think what we'll do is we'll pick up our study right here uh, in the middle of page 164, starting in verse 13. We'll read that liturgy all over again. We'll probably just start with verse 13 and talk about this freedom uh, that Paul talks about uh, that that the, the, the Gentile Christians were brought into, and not to use this freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, but through love serve one another. We'll jump right into that and see how it bears relevance to what Paul would agree with keeping the Torah. From my perspective, Paul wasn't teaching the Gentile Christians to to abandon Torah observance, but rather he was te- he was in favor of a of what we might call a, a, a favorable view of Torah among the Gentile Christians. And this favorable view of Torah would include 
um, a, a proper definition of what it means to love one another, to serve one another, to, f- to, to actually walk into the righteous requirement of Torah, things like that. We'll talk about that next week. But let's close for now. And those who were in the study, uh, sorry I went uh, probably, what, an hour and 20 minutes. Um, I apologize for the lengthy study tonight. But I hope it goes a long way towards answering some of the questions that perhaps many of you have been writing into me about, uh, particularly with my uh, position on uh, old perspective of Paul versus new perspective and things like that. Let's close in prayer. Father, I bless your name, and I thank you for this opportunity to sit and to study words of Torah. I pray that you will uh, take uh, the... the um, the important biblical concepts that were discussed tonight uh, that are rooted in truth, those that I didn't make mistakes on, I pray that you'll take those and put them deep into our heart so that we can meditate on them, so that we can grow on them, so that we can uh, make them a part of our lives and a part of our well-being. Uh, and the parts that I am in error with, the parts that I have made mistakes on, the parts that are just Ariel, I pray that those will just slough off, that they'll, that they'll, that they'll drop off, and that those won't be the parts that, are, that will take root in our heart. Thank you, Father, for this um, responsibility of teaching Torah to students, studying right along next to them. I pray that you'll continue to bless us, raise us up. Thank you for Hanukkah and for the blessings that we can enjoy during this season. And we'll continue to uh, praise you, Lord, for all the wonderful things that you're doing for our families and for our communities. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him? serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>